Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares talks about the insidious sin called envy. Envy, I think, just like it surprised me, a pretty well-traveled student of the Bible, as to how often this comes up, but how rarely it's addressed. And I think it's high time that we do this. I looked around for popular books that were written on it, Christian circles and Christian bookstores. This is a hard topic to find elaborated on, and it's time for us to elaborate on it because it is the source of a million things that probably are going wrong in your life that you've never made the connection. Some sins catch our attention quickly. They're shocking, scandalous, or even frightening. But there's a serious sin wreaking havoc in our society, in our relationships, and in our souls that too often goes undetected. And there's a good chance you're already suffering from its consequences. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares talks about the subtle but pervasive and powerful sin of envy. I'm Dave Drewy. We're launching a brand new month-long series about envy. And now here's Pastor Mike with a message titled, Envy, a Private but Disruptive Sin. As most of you have read, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. At the end of Paul's own life, he looks back and he says, I have fought the good fight. We as Christians are told to uh, put on the whole armor of God. And the battle and war metaphors, they just continue throughout the New Testament. And the question I have for you is, what do you think of when you think of the Christian life as warfare? What, What comes to your mind? What do you think about? You might think, as so often the metaphors go, that, for instance, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we have been armed with weapons for the right hand and the left. They're not uh, earthly weapons, uh, but they're weapons that we enlist to tear down any argument that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. They're, they're powerful for the destruction of those arguments. Um, you might think of that, the apologetic war that we're in with a world that constantly tries to uh, tear down and besmirch the truth about, about God, about Christ, about the gospel. Uh, you might think of Christ's uh, very militaristic terminology regarding the advancement of the church. You might think of the evangelistic assault upon the gates of hell as we're pushing into enemy territory to see people won to Christ and putting their trust in Jesus. That's uh, certainly appropriate and and, and guided by the biblical texts. Um, Much of the uh, battle in the Christian life is uh, external. It's out there. But I think most of you know also that a lot of the battle motifs are directed uh, to the battlefield inside of your life. There's a lot going on that uh, really necessitates a kind of a war footing in our own thinking regarding our our hearts, our lives, our minds. Um, As it's put in 1 Peter, there are uh, passions, desires that wage war, that's the terminology, against your soul. Um, We know that there is much that we are told, talk about a war footing, Colossians 3, 5, we are supposed to put to death whatever remains in you that's earthly, that's, a, that's an unchristian way to do things, that reflects a, an unregenerate life. Those are to be declared as uh, things to be uh, eradicated. 
the Christian life has much that directs us to think about the war on the inside, and many of the things on the inside that we're called to fight are easy to identify. Right? When the uh, lustful, uh, immoral thought erupts, you, you, I hope as Christians know, wow, that's, that's got to be dealt with. The outburst of anger, or as Paul says, the obscene talk. Right? There's a lot of things that you say, and go, oh, that's, that's not befitting a Christian, and you know it's there. It, it comes with uh, like the roar of a jet engine over the horizon as a missile is launched your way, and it explodes like a 500-pound bomb. It's like, okay, this is clear. This is wrong. I need to, to fight this. But there's a lot of warfare in the Christian life on the interior, the battlefield of your own heart that that's much more stealth. It's like a sniper that's hiding in the grass with a very hefty silencer on the end of the barrel. And uh, he takes shots at you, these particular sins, and they, uh, they, they hit you before you even know what, what happened. Um, there's a kind of uh, assault that's going on in your sanctification that uh, is much harder to detect. Christians of a different time, they spent a lot of uh, effort in looking at some of those very subtle enemies that are very insidious, they're covert, they're under the radar. They're the kinds of things that Christians in past generations have said, you better be careful about these, because these aren't obvious. And I found that we have let some of these assaults on our sanctification to go uh, unchecked. And it's time for us as a church, I think, to stand back and to say, we, we need to look at the things that are moving me away from Christ's likeness, and they're really attacking my progress in the Christian life. And the reason we need to spend time on this is because there are certain insidious temptations and sins that take root in your life, and they are the cause of a, a, a hundred lesser evils, as Tozer put it, that, that are unfolding in your life, and you never make the association. Well, I have this problem, but this problem really is associated to this undetected sniper that's taking shots at you, and you're, you're not even realizing it. You don't hear it, you don't see it, you, you just start to see the effects as you start to bleed out in your passion for the Lord, or something happens and, and, and no longer am I interested in, 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 in loving or caring or serving or, or reading my Bible or praying. These are things that are happening, and we've got to, we've got to, we've got to identify them. I was studying, and um, in Acts chapter 13, in verse 44 in particular, there's a description of why Paul and Barnabas were run out of Pisidian Antioch. It ends up not only just having them uh, run out of town, but uh, they end up putting a mob together to chase them down, and uh, they leave Paul for dead under a, a pile of rocks. And the descriptive there in Acts 13:44 was a description that I, I noted, and it really stuck in my mind, in particular because the sin that was described is a sin that I think today Christians tolerate pretty well, and perhaps they don't even see it as a sin. Indicated, by the way, by the fact that I've been in this for a long time, and I hear very few Christians ever repent of this particular sin. How big is it? It's so big that when I read that and studied that text and brought that sermon to preach to you, though the sermon was about something else, about our example of Paul's tenacity, I realized that this was the very same sin that was designated as the reason that they crucified Christ. I thought, wow, I don't see much written on this. I don't see much preached on this. Matter of fact, I went back into my sermons and I have thousands in my sermon database and I looked for times that I preached on this topic. I found one sermon out of thousands at least that I had put as a heading under the category of this particular sin. 
But if this sin isn't dealt with, I can assure you, it's going to be the source of all kinds of other sins. As a matter of fact, this particular sin has always been found from very early in, in, in church history as a, what they would call a, a capital vice, a capital sin. As um, some of the early church fathers would put it, this is a sin that is the uh, dictator and commander of a, of a, a bunch of lesser sins. <laughs> this is like a, you know, a general in the fight against you. It's a, a capital vice or a capital sin. And maybe if you've read books or come out of some church tradition that speaks of the deadly sins, the seven deadly sins, it's always going to be listed among them. And um, of course, this cloaked introduction is no surprise to you because you saw the bulletin when you came in or you saw the title of the sermon published on the website. You know we're going to be talking about the sin of envy. And I think some people think, wow, why would we spend any time on that? We need to spend some time on that. As a matter of fact, I've scheduled four sermons to work through the problem of envy because envy, I think, just like it surprised me, a pretty well-traveled student of the Bible, as to how often this comes up but how rarely it's addressed and, and how rarely the light of Scripture is put on it, I think it, it's high time that we do this. I looked around for popular books that were written on it, Christian circles and Christian bookstores. This is a hard topic to find elaborated on, and it's time for us to elaborate on it because it is the source of a million things that probably are going wrong in your life that you've never made the connection. So, I'd like you to grab your Bibles, and as you see here, this is going to be a, uh, if you've got your worksheet, you'll see it's going to be a textual topical series. I call it that because it's not rooted in one particular passage of Scripture. It's, it really comes from many of them. It's a systematic study of a problem that we need to address or we're going to continue to take hits and not even know where they came from. So, Take your Bibles, and maybe it would be good for you. I don't even know that you need to turn to this first one. It's there next to the first point on your worksheet, that blank that I trust you're going to fill in here in a minute. And it comes from Mark chapter 15, verse 10. And in Mark 15, verse 10, we see someone you wouldn't expect to have a lot of insight into spiritual things, and he doesn't. But he certainly has enough sense as a leader, an accomplished leader, to look at the problem of Christ being brought before the Romans, and he says, I know what the issue is. The issue is they're delivering him over because of envy. Who was? Well, the Sanhedrin, right? the top ruling class of the Jews, the people that ran the, the Temple Mount. right? I mean, he had uh, so offended them not so much by the fact that he stood for certain things they didn't like, although they didn't care for that, but because the crowds were going after him. I mean, all Israel's going to be following him. So he's just like, here he is riding in on a donkey on Palm Sunday, and everyone's like cheering and palm branches. They were envious. He had something that they wanted, and they didn't like that he was getting more of the spotlight than they were. Who was he? What seminary did he go to? How did he get into this position? I don't understand. We used to be something here, and now it seems like all the favor of the people is shifting over to him, and they were envious. And the man who saw this in Mark 15 is Pilate of all people. And it said he, the word is gnosko. He, he perceived it. He understood it. Gnosko. It's the word for knowledge. He had the knowledge. It rose to the surface that he was able to see the motive behind it. And so really, envy is a motive. That's why it's a capital sin. It's a, it's a, it's a deadly sin. It's, it's a deadly vice that causes other things, right? The crucifixion of Christ 
Or even as it says in Acts 13, the reviling of Paul, which is bad. You're slandering a man that doesn't deserve it. He's innocent of the things you're slandering of. And also the heresy of saying, speaking against what he was saying. He was holding up the scrolls. Paul was, and speaking about what the prophecy said and how Christ fulfilled them. And they said, no, we're not going to have you teach those things. We're going to teach something that contradicts that. So they became heretics all because of, as it says in the text, they, they had this jealous, envious desire to have what they had. And you remember what happened was when Paul showed up on the second Sabbath, they had a big crowd. Now all of a sudden we needed two services, needed more parking spaces out front, needed to order more donuts. And all of a sudden the, the, the leaders of the synagogue were saying, we don't like this. When I preach, I don't get crowds like that. I, I don't understand. Envy. And I thought immediately of Christ. Christ was delivered over because of envy. It says in Matthew 27, uh, clearly it says, as, it, as I've stated in, in Mark 15, 10, here is a perception of a man saying, I get it. Which, by the way, sin is always easier to perceive in someone else than yourself. Understand that. Pilate had a lot of problems. I preached on Pilate, kind of psychoanalyzed Pilate, if you will, theologically analyzed Pilate. And, and he's got issues, but he's able to see the issue of envy in other people. And I guess that's where we need to start. As we define it, we need to identify it, we need to discern it, we need to get a sense of it. So if you're taking notes, jot these words down. You need to discern the sin of envy. As a committed follower of Christ, you need to see it. You need to see it when it's in you, not just when it's in other people. So we need to define it, we need to see what it is. And to do that, I want to go to Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20, we have a story that Jesus tells that's all about the problem of envy. And the word that is used in the passage, as you'll see, the punchline of the story is going to give us great insight and will help us just illustrate this and show you examples of it and maybe even have the lights come on, the light of God's word and the conviction of God's spirit this morning say, oh, I got a big problem here. I didn't even realize I had it. Matthew chapter 20, did you find your way there? It says in verse number one, the kingdom of heaven is like a master. These are the words of Christ of the house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, that's the ancient Roman equivalent of one day's pay for a worker. So this is a fair wage. Whatever that is today, whatever you know the going rate is for a, a worker that's working in, in, in the fields, right? That, then they said, will you work for a day's wage? It's like, oh, okay, it's a good quid pro quo. I'm gonna exchange my, my time for dollars. And so, yeah, and he sent them into the vineyard. And the key word in verse two is they agreed to it. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, so I don't know, he's heading to Home Depot in, in the mid-morning here, and uh, he's got to run into town. He sees others standing in the marketplace. And he said to them, um, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I'll give it to you. We won't talk about the money arrangement. Just, I see you're already, you're burning daylight. You're three hours into it. So just go out into the field. And so they went going out again about the sixth hour. So now he's driving through, you know, in and out burger to get lunch. He's like, wow, there's more workers standing around here. And he did the same thing. Hey, you guys wanna work, go work. I'll pay whatever's fair. Verse six, and about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. Who knows what kind of errand he's running here. Why do you stand here all idle all day? And they said, well, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Verse eight, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last. Now remember the last, he hired 11 hours into daylight. They only had an hour to work. Right, go to the last and then you pay up to the first, the first people to get here who got here in the morning. 
And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a full day's wage, a denarius. Oh, I got a full day. I got, you know, a few hundred bucks here in my pocket. That was awesome. And you can imagine looking at each other, we only, were only here for an hour. Wow, this guy's super generous. That's super nice. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. They started doing the math. Man, I'm going to receive like 1,100 like, denarius. That's going to be awesome. But each one also received a denarius. And upon receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Does that make sense to you? Does that not make perfect sense to you? Right? Think about it. You go get a degree, you go get a master's degree, you go interview, you go get a, a, a contract, they talk about your pay, they talk about the package, the benefit package, they talk about the retirement plan, the 403B or the 401K, they talk about the health insurance and the health benefit savings program, they put it all in front of you and you agree to it, you walk out, you go home, you tell your wife, I got a good job, a good package, good deal, this is awesome, let's celebrate, let's go out to dinner, we got a good job now, and you come back into work the next day and he hires someone else with no college education, gives him the same title that you have, and he happens to share that his pay is twice your pay, and he has better benefits, and not only that, he's got an expense account and a bunch of other things, and he starts sharing, isn't it great to work here? Our boss is so generous, and you go, well, he ain't that generous to me. Well, yesterday you celebrated it with your wife. Your pillow talk was it's great to have a good job now. But you go in the next day, and this guy has twice the package of benefits as you, and twice the pay as you. I don't know, how's that going to go when you start to talk to your wife that night about, around dinner? You're going to grumble against the master of the house. You're going to say, what's with the HR department? What's with the boss? What's with this guy? Who is this guy that I'm sitting with in the workroom talking about making twice what I'm making, and he didn't even go to college? What's the response? Verse 13, he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Yesterday you were in here and you signed the contract. You signed the benefits pack. You, signed, you were all fine. You told your wife this was a great job. Did you not agree with me for a day's wage? That's a fair wage. Take what belongs to you and go. If I choose to give this last worker as I give you, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? Okay, there's a word you probably didn't use much this week, begrudge, okay? You know that's a word that's not a good word. I don't want to feel this begrudging feeling. It doesn't even have an object here. It doesn't have an object because in Greek, you might see if you have a footnote, if you're reading, for instance, an ESV, an English Standard Version, look at that footnote and look at the marginal reading. It will give you this really weird Greek construction of what we're translating from the original language of the New Testament. Do you see it? Let's look at it here together. What does it see? You've got an ESV. It, here, here's literally what it says. Is your eye bad because I'm good? What? Is your eye bad because I'm good. Is your eye bad? Envy, let's just talk about it grammatically. Uh, envy is a, a transliteration, a loose transliteration of the Latin word, invidia, invidia. It's a compound preposition, in, which is against or toward or upon in Latin. And uh, vidia or video would be the noun. And video, we know, is, is something we see moving on a screen. But the word means 
video is, means to look. Vidya means my eyes. So, in Vidya, looking at, looking upon. See, the assumption is I'm looking not just upon you because you, boss, gave me a package deal that I don't like because you gave someone else something better, but my eye now is cast on them. I don't like them the way they get treated differently than I get treated when I should be getting, I should be doing better because they've done less. They're getting benefits that I'm not getting. They're getting advantages I'm not getting. I'm casting my eye on them. And that's a bad eye, a bad eye. Envy really means to, to look upon, to look upon. And I'm looking upon other people that God has been more generous to or the master of the house in this illustration. And I, I, I don't feel good about it. That's why begrudge is not a bad translation because it really captures the, the idiom, both in Hebrew, by the way, it goes way back, and Greek, the idea of putting your eye on someone. If that seems too complicated, think of it this way, gals, you buy a dress for Easter. It's really nice, you put a little extra money into it. You look in the mirror, you go, it's looking pretty good, let's go to church. Get to church last week and you see another gal out there after church wearing a dress that looks really a lot like yours. But apparently in the who wore it better category, um, it must be her because you're overhearing as you're by the coffee table there, the donut table. I mean, you're standing near her. You've heard like four compliments on her dress. And guess who said nothing about your dress? No one, including your husband. It's like no one said anything. You're looking at your dress. You're looking at her dress. You're hearing everyone compliment her. And here's what you're going to do to her, gals, because gals do this all the time. You're going to cast, you're going to cast your eye upon her, up and down. And while she, by the way, as you're looking her over, is picking up her coffee, and then she gets a donut for her kid, and her kid's kind of pulling on her skirt, and she's balancing that coffee, you're just kind of eyeballing, maybe that coffee will just go right like on, on her dress. Wouldn't be that, I mean... I might run over and go, oh, can I, here's a napkin. But it wouldn't be horrific if the one getting all the compliments on the dress that looks just like mine, right, has a nice coffee stain all over herself now. No, oh, I would never say that out loud, but I'm casting a bad eye on that. This is Focal Point and a message called Envy, A Private But Disruptive Sin from Pastor Mike Fabares. We'll hear more from Mike in just a moment, so stay with us. You know, nobody preaches the word quite like Pastor Mike. And if you value the accurate and discerning truth here on Focal Point, then we invite you to become a Focal Point partner and be a part of the team that ensures this program continues to make an impact in your community. So sign up to give monthly when you call 888-320-5885 or when you go to focalpointradio.org. Well, Pastor Mike, there are a lot of issues people are worried about these days. Finances, politics, uncertainty about the future. But most people aren't thinking about envy. So tell us, why is envy such a big cause for concern? Yeah, I do think one of the most destructive threats we're facing today, believe it or not, is envy. In an age of materialism and social media, envy has crept into most of our daily lives. And whether you know it or not, it's damaging our relationships, it's rotting our culture from the inside out. Envy, it's an insidious and pervasive sin. But thankfully, there's hope. I wrote a new book called Envy, A Big Problem You Didn't Know You Had to show you how to overcome this corrosive sin. 
and live a contented and joyful Christian life. By understanding how we as Christians are meant to live, you're going to discover how to truly rejoice with those who rejoice. In my book, I explore biblical truths that are going to help you shore up your heart and your mind and close those gaps that leave us vulnerable to envy's temptations. Learn how to live well and read my new book, Envy, A Big Problem You Didn't Know You Had. Dave's going to explain how you can get your copy. Thanks, Pastor Mike. You can get a copy of Envy when you make a generous donation to Focal Point by calling us at 888-320-5885 or going online to focalpointradio.org. We'll send you Pastor Mike's latest book as our way of saying thanks for your support. Again, that's focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, hoping you'll join us tomorrow to learn more about Envy, a private but disruptive sin, Tuesday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. Ever wish you could corner your pastor and challenge him with your toughest questions about the Bible, about faith? Well, now you can. Send me your questions. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click on Ask Pastor Mike. Or send me a note on facebook.com slash pastormike or twitter.com slash pastormike. I can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.